Norfolk Southern is delivering a low carbon economy, which benefits everyone. We're providing customers a way to significantly reduce their supply chain transportation emissions and improve air quality in our communities. As the first class one railroad to offer green bonds, I can tell you, we're not just in the business of moving freight. We are in the business of a better planet. There is over a trillion dollars of waste in supply chains today. The net zero carbon emission is something that corporates are taking very seriously. To meet these objectives, they're gonna have to take into consideration CO2 emissions. Welcome to Net Zero Carbon, a show on Freightways where we focus on information, insights, and inspiration and sustainability and transportation. I'm Danny Gomez, your host. And today I'm joined by Martin Liu, founder of Comtrex. Martin, thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me, Danny. Appreciate you inviting me. And thank you very much, Freightways, for, for having me also. Yeah, so this show is focused, like as we say, in sustainability. And um, we thought it was great to bring you on. We think that um, rail is a really big piece in achieving lower carbon emissions in transportation. And, you know, we've known each other for a while. We go back a few years. We met in Houston. Um, luckily, at a, at a happy hour, we had some mutual contacts. And um, that was really the start of my, um, my entrance into the transportation world. And the introduction, I think, of contracts and freight waves. Um, you guys started a bit of a relationship after that. Yeah, that's exactly right, Danny. I appreciate uh, uh, the, the relationship we've built over the past few years. In fact, I, the reason why I, I, I know Freightways or have been able to work with Freightways is because the introduction you made to Craig. Uh, and that was just when I was kind of getting conscious off the ground. So um, both Craig and I were kind of uh, growing uh, Freightways and Comtrex in a, a fairly similar paths. Um, uh, obviously, I focused on rail and he was more focused on supply chain, but it's impressive to see what Freightways have been able to build over the past few years. Yeah, and you know, we're excited today to talk about what you have built, um, I think going back to learning about your background, I think is really interesting in hearing that you had an early start and how this all kind of came about. You know, you had exposure to the coal markets and the environmental markets. And I think the coal markets obviously fed into the ideation for contracts. And now the environmental markets are going to be, I think, a big part of all of our future um, and that knowledge surely will uh, come in handy. Do you mind just going through your background a little bit and how you kind of came to the point of launching contracts and all the all the background that fed into that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, prior to contracts, uh, I was actually a commodities originator and trader for uh, Bear Stearns and JP Morgan. And how, how did I get there? Uh, before that, I actually went to law school uh, and I had every intention to be a securities lawyer. Um, as I got to the sort of end of my law school career, I, I really figured out that I'm, I was more passionate about business than I was about law. So I decided to apply to, to different banks and got a job working uh, in Houston on the um, coal and emissions trading desk for Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns was started up an energy trading platform. Um, so when I started at uh, Bear, uh, I was uh, effectively a middle market originator um, focused on two components of, of, of the environmental and, and coal markets. Number one was uh, really sort of trading SO2 NOx um, and carbon and renewable energy credits. Uh, and that was a SO2 NOx was a pretty mature program um, helped developed by the uh, EPA and the, uh, to, to really sort of mitigate the uh, pollution in the air from sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide. And then coal was the other uh, critical component to, to, to our, our business, which was effectively buying and selling physical coal from, from mines, selling it to power generators across North America, and then also finding um, the best 
opportunities to sell the coal uh, across the world, focusing particularly on, on Europe and Asia. So March of 08, uh, JP Morgan buys Bear Stearns, um, the financial uh, markets sort of go into meltdown mode, but uh, one of two of the businesses that uh, JP Morgan really valued in Bear Stearns was the global commodities trading business. Um, and we were part of that. Uh, and because of the fact that they valued that, they continued to put more resources into it. So uh, our business continued to grow. And I ended up being with JP Morgan up until uh, 2014. Okay. Coal is obviously a big part of, um, of rail. How did that experience lead into you seeing an opportunity to, to launch a, a marketplace and a platform? Yeah, absolutely. So coal, uh, if you look at all the different commodities, you know, your your 20 major commodity groups that move on rail, coal traditionally has been the largest uh, by volume um, product that moves on rail. So very, very significant um, to all the class on railroads and to, uh, and, and to the overall footprint of, of rail. And because we were moving millions of tons of coal a year, there were a lot of inefficiencies that uh, I was able to identify that I, I as a shipper was constantly dealing with. Uh, and there were a few major areas where I thought, uh, you know, sort of needed to be addressed and, and in order for coal to kind of be more efficient as we move uh, into the next sort of uh, phase of, of, of fossil fuels and energy. Uh, number one was transparency. Um, you know, as an originator working with our, our, our trading desk, time was always of the essence. So uh, whenever we're modeling deals, we needed to have all the inputs to be able to calculate the, either the delivered cost or the net back to see if it was in the money to move. And uh, oftentimes it was very difficult to be able to figure out what capacity availability there was, whether we were looking at terminals and ports that were moving coal through, whether we we're looking at rail car capacity to be able to lease cars, looking at transloading available capacity. Um, there are a lot of different components to the freight move, which um, you know, by being able to access it in a much faster, more efficient way, it was critical to, 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 to getting deals done. Uh, number two was connectivity. Um, you know, both trucking and ocean going freight were fairly mature markets with respect to connectivity. Load boards have been around for, for quite a while and ocean going freight um, had uh, uh, several sort of uh, platforms and mechanisms to be able to see where capacity was available. Um, rail didn't have that mechanism. So, uh, you know, for being somebody who, you know, worked at one of the largest banks in the world, um, if I was having trouble finding or identifying resources or people to help me out with the particular deals I was working on, I, I only knew that other shippers that may not have had the same amount of resources that we had have got to be experiencing the same thing. So when, you know, thinking about where I thought the, the puck was going for, for, for rail, uh, I, I knew that there was a, a primary factor that was going to change the way people function within rail. And that was really the changing demographics of, of, of everyone on the rail side and also on the shipper side. Um, you know, by 2020, 50% of the population or the global workforce would be millennials. And by, seven, by 2025, it'd be 75%. So, you know, millennials are digital natives. And by default, uh, the first place they go to, you know, both in their personal and business lives are, are, is technology. So I, I knew sitting in 2014 that eventually, you know, all the transactions and a lot of the front office activities that typically were done over the phone uh, we're we're, we're going to move to an electronic platform. So I, I decided to leave the the, the trading world and, and start um, what at the time I thought was going to be uh, the largest sort of marketplace and platform for uh, the supply and demand side of, of the Railroad Street Connect. So who are the main users of contracts today? 
So, so when you look at the marketplace, uh, you look at it. I, I look at it in two uh, different respects. There's the supply and the demand side. The demand side, it, it, we view as the shippers. So they're really sort of driving all the the, the shipping uh, and freight that's moving across uh, North America. And then the supply side is everybody who services the shippers. Um, so that's everyone from your class one railroads, to your short line railroads, transloaders, uh, lessors, uh, and then all the service providers that help to manage the fleet from rail car repair, rail car cleaning, track services. So the, the, the primary component to our business has always been driven around the shippers. Um, when you build a marketplace, you typically have to focus in on either the supply or the demand side, you know, initially when getting the business off the ground. And, and we knew the, the critical piece to the success of contracts was to be able to get shippers to be uh, active in using our system. And, and today, you know, the shippers are, are the, the largest demographic of our sort of users and absolutely the most, mo most active demographic because they drive all the activity and all the requests that happen in our system. Very interesting. And, you know, as you look at contracts and evolution, um, so you've got this large shipper community that's um, that's you're engaging with, and you're pulling in um, the the carriers, right? Um, how how has that evolved over time, and even in maybe looking into crystal ball a little bit, how do you think that evolves here in the future? Yeah, so when we were starting the business. Um, I, I recall talking to a, a lot of shippers and different focus groups that we had just to kind of better understand how, how to use the product. And I, I remember at the time um, back in, uh, you know, 2015, uh, the industry uh, has been functioning, you know, in, in the same manner for, you know, for, for over a century. And uh, a lot of the, the, the folks that I were talking to um, really didn't see that there was going to be a major shift happening in the way business was transacted. Um, so the focus really sort of initially was getting uh, the, the industry educated on why it was important to adopt a, a, a centralized repository platform. And the, 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 the two primary reasons which I was constantly sort of uh, out there evangelizing was number one, we have to prepare for this next shift uh, in the demographics of our industry. Uh, you have a tremendous amount of, of, of baby boomers and um, uh, of logistic professionals um, that were going to be retiring over the next five to 10 years. And if there wasn't an electronic repository or one centralized database where all the information and all the different sources were located and there wasn't a smooth transfer of information between sort of the, the, the generation with, uh, the, you know, 15, 20, 25 years experience to the next generation, I, I knew that potentially could be a, a, an issue for the industry. So, so just getting people to buy into the fact that, you know, we as an industry had to get ahead of this and really sort of make this a much more um, digitized industry for not our generation or definitely for the next generation. And the second component of that is is, is really sort of, you know, staying up with the times because every mode of transportation was getting, you know, was becoming more and more advanced uh, with technology, you know, not only leveraging front office and back office technology, but office, you know, but really leveraging data analytics. So uh, a critical component to this was um, figuring out exactly, um, you know, what we needed to do as an industry to be able to drive more efficiencies and effectiveness to, to really make railroading a much more competitive uh, mode of transportation relative to, to, the, uh, to, to trucking and other modes of transportation. So, Martin, you know, technology and adoption and change and having an industry that's willing to change is, is really important. Um, how have you seen the industry react to sustainability? Well, 
you know, ever since I started the company in 2015, sustainability has always been an issue that I kind of kept my ears uh, listening for because of my background with environmental markets. Um, so I, I also knew that that was going to be a trend that eventually was going to permeate through the railroad industry because it was always pretty. It was already pretty evident that um, the S&P 500 and your Fortune sort of 500 and 1,000 companies were already putting CSOs and sustainability efforts in place. Um, and not until about a few years ago did I really see a lot of the senior executives across the railroad industry and then also across the commodity shippers uh, starting to talk about it uh, in their 10Ks and their Qs, and, and you start hearing about it, much more about it at conferences. And that's when um, you know uh, us here at, at Contracts really started to think about what is it we can do, you know, at the very least on the education side, because the other component to our business that's that's a, that's a significant component is is educating uh, the next generation of railroaders um, on on different components of the industry. So um, we knew that ESG and and sustainability was going to be an important component. So that's you know as of the past you know call it year year and a half. Um, it's been become a, a much more comp important component to the conversations we're having um, with both the shippers and the railroad side of the business. So, you know, now more than ever, are, are you seeing the the idea or the the topic of sustainability sort of, uh, you know, as a major topic when your railroad executives are on earnings calls or when they're at conferences and they're speaking about, you know, what are the major changes or initiatives they're taking? Um, and the, the two chain or the two major catalysts uh, that you're seeing right now are really the stakeholders and the shareholders really sort of asking for more uh, transparency on what's being done. And number two, really, the, the, the people who drive everything are going to be the shippers. Um, if they want to mandate sustainability as an important component to their overall transportation or supply chain strategy, um, everybody within that supply chain has to has to not only listen, but they actually have to put, you know, put some resources into it if they want to help manage the product for the, for those shippers. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about what people are saying publicly. And even more recently, we saw um, someone who published a sustainability report and they the number one item that they listed in terms of reducing emissions was shifting um, over the road to intermodal. And I think they the, the quote was that it was two and a half times more um, or, or less um, carbon intensive to do that transportation over rail. And so we've continued to hear this, right? And it's not just one specific person. It's a lot of people across the industry that are turning to rail as a way to reduce emissions. Um, even the EPA, I think it lists on their website as one of the key things that firms can do to reduce emissions. Obviously, you have to balance that between um, the service that you're wanting to provide for the various goods that you're shipping. But how have you seen or what have you seen in um, in the industry, in the rail industry? Has there been a pickup? I believe I would expect that um, transloading would be a great place to look to see that activity picking up. Yes. Uh, the you know, Right now, in particular, um, over the past, you know, since the pandemic and now that we're coming out of the pandemic, um, the supply chain congestion, congestion and, and choke points are more highlighted and magnified now more than you know people have seen in their careers. Um, and you know our transit marketplace, which we launched about a year ago, uh, really timing-wise, uh, came about at the perfect time because you know in order to be able to create flexibility within your supply chain or within your transportation strategy, uh, transloading is that mechanism or that piece that really can help you. Uh, provide more optionality to how you move your product. 
So for those who don't know, transloading is moving um, freight from one mode of transportation to the other. So think about the lanes that a lot of the shippers move in. If they wanted to figure out different ways to be able to move, uh, you know, cross modality, uh, transloading is really that mechanism that allows them to do that. So um, uh, important component of transloading, obviously, is either going to be carload transloading or intermodal transloading. And on the intermodal piece, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, when thinking about where you can probably capture the most, um, you know, decarbonization or the most sort of uh, reductions in GHG footprints, it's really trying to move as much uh, freight moving by truck over to rail. Um, and that's something that we're seeing a lot more. Um, not only from shippers, but also from your large IMCs, your freight brokers, your large VPLs. Uh, there's a major shift right now with um, folks uh, that are making strong uh, targets or objectives or goals to, you know, either sort of, you know, double or in some cases more than double the amount of sort of capacity move from trucking over to rail. And the rails are doing a great job with helping to accommodate that because, Every single class one railroad website, now they all have carbon calculators as well. So they're also trying to play their part to be able to give transparency and educate shippers on what the alternative is. So if they're currently moving truck between one, you know, one origin destination and they're contemplating sort of moving that from truck over to intermodal or to rail, uh, I, I think an important part of the decision-making process is what is that reduction in GHG emissions that can be captured through that? And, you know, two, three years ago, you wouldn't have seen that across all the railroad websites. And now that's front and center on every single class one railroad website. Um, and then also when you're going in and putting in a request for freight rates, that is a component of the freight rate that comes back to the shipper is not only what the rate is, but also what is that GHG emission savings. So, you know, you see it not only from the rail sector, but you see it also from shippers that are also making um, a lot more effort to be able to figure out ways to move more product by uh, by intermodal uh, versus truck. That's super interesting. I mean, do you feel like there's enough capacity to serve a growing market? Um, well, <laughs> The, the the thing with intermodal is uh, versus trucking is you're not relying upon truck drivers. Um, right. So you are relying upon locomotives. Um, and, you know, when you think about where you're going to gain the most efficiencies for, um, for, for the carbon footprint for rails, it's really going to be in fuel management. And that fuel management really is going to come from how they manage the locomotives and how they manage the locomotive capacity. So there's a, there's a huge step up in investments to moving to these tier four locomotives that are much more fuel efficient. Um, you know, a lot of folks don't realize it, but a lot of times when you see a locomotive or a train that's that's at a standstill, um, locomotives, uh, they're, they're running. They don't turn the locomotives off, you know, so they're idling. So, you know, now there's more technologies that, that, are, that are being explored and researched that are going to be able to help turn those locomotives on and off to be able to save on fuel and then also to be able to save on emissions. But really where the most gains are going to be captured for the rails are going to be in, in the fuel management, so also in creating longer train sets. But you know, to, to your point, though, um, yes, I do think there is the capacity there for the rails to really step up and to, to manage all the capacity because they're not so reliant uh, upon um, you know there being enough um, sort of uh, human beings to be able to drive the trucks. And you know, the, the, the typical ratio you think of you know four trucks for every sort of uh, for every trainload or for every carload. Um, so there's a lot less of a footprint you need just generally physically when you're moving product by intermodal versus intermodal versus truck. But yes, the, the railroads are they see that demand coming and they're doing everything they can to be able to, to, to have enough supply capacity to meet that demand that's that's that, that's growing.
That's interesting because we talk a lot um, with people about what can they do now, right? Um, because I think there's so much focus on longer term technologies. EV obviously um, takes the spotlight in most in most conversations, but that's not something that we can transition to overnight. Alternative fuels will be probably a transition to EVs, but that also has its own infrastructure challenges. And so, you know, even last, um, when we were talking to, to Dan Lewis, who you know from Convoy, about what they're focusing on, and they're focusing on the things that you can do now, which is reducing empty miles, as one example. Um, you know, having intermodal seems like another, not easy, maybe easy, but a very, you know, practical thing that people can can do as pe as firms look at their supply chain and try to identify the types of activity that they can move to to rail is there um, is there an easy way for them to identify what types of activities is it is it certain distances certain geographies is it certain types of products yeah typically when you're thinking about intermodal you're, you're there's the radius you're looking at for intermodal really makes sense it's kind of that 700 to 750 mile radius once you get past that, you're kind of in that long haul, um, you know, that long haul category. Uh, and, and if you have, if you're a shipper and you're moving freight and you have certain lanes where you are doing more long haul trucking, those are probably the lanes that you're going to assess first. And, you know, to just be quite frank, you're probably already assessing that just because of the fact that there's such a limited amount of capacity in a lot of the, the, the lanes already. So you're not only doing that for sustainability efforts, but you're practically doing that to be able to create more reliability with your supply chain. Um, now more than ever, you know, through our transiting marketplace, we're seeing shippers who A, have never ever moved freight by rail or B, have moved freight by rail minimally, but primarily have moved by truck. They're coming to us and they're asking us for help with assessing their strategy of how they're looking at their lanes and should they be looking at their lanes differently um, because of these constraints. So, you know, not only do they have at the, the more senior management level, these target goals for, you know, what their GHG emissions are going to be by certain target dates. Um, so that is a component of it. But I think even more practically is just, you know, in order for reliability to, to, to really be there, they need to know that there's optionality and there's flexibility with how they move their freight. And at this time, um, because there are so many choke points up and down the supply chain, um, shippers are being forced to be able to reevaluate all their lanes of business. And because of that, you're seeing the railroads really trying to figure out how they can help these uh, these shippers uh, provide more capacity through these lanes that you know potentially you know have never ever moved you know via re via intermodal. Um, but that's, you know, really sort of driven by what's happening right now overall in the, in the supply chain. So, you know, you take those two factors, you take the supply chain congestion and the choke points and, and the fact that there's so much pent up demand that, uh, that, that was caused in the pandemic and you take sustainability and it's almost kind of a perfect storm, uh, you know, for the railroads and intermodal to be able to capture more, more freight spent, um, from trucking. Yeah, it sounds, it, it seems like that. Right. And. One other question I have um, in regards to the, the truckload side, I mean, there is some level of, um, from, from a time perspective that you're gonna lose by going to rail. Can you speak to that a little of the, the difference or the sacrifice that one would give up to, gain, to get emissions reductions um, by moving something that is long haul trucking over to rail? Yeah, it's just, so generally you're, you're not gonna have the same uh, um, uh, level of, um, how'd you say, 
Um, precision when you're moving a, a product um, by uh, intermodal um, because of the fact that, you know, having a truck that you can track in real time and being able to have that truckload be able to get to a destination and track exactly where that's at, you know, in real time. Um, and, and think about the logistics of moving intermodal, right? So there's intermodal ramps and terminals. And so it's not like a truck where a truck can go from origin directly to destination. So, you know, it, it goes from, you know, first mile all the way to that last mile. You know, there's the first mile, there's the middle mile, and then there's the last mile. So there is that additional day that's typically added to any intermodal move. Um, so when thinking about any move that you're making or the moves that are or the or the, the freight that's being moved over first from uh, trucking to intermodal, it's going to be your more uh, your less time sensitive uh, freight and products. Um, and, you know, if you have product or freight that is less time sensitive, that it doesn't need to be there sort of uh, it, within a very small sort of window time frame. Um, it makes more sense to be able to move that. But, you know, as, as, as we build more, you know, we as a road industry build more terminals, build more ramps. Um, we, you know, we, we, there are more micro distribution centers that are put along the, uh, the, the footprint of the U.S. and Canada and Mexico. Um, I think intermodal is going to start to shrink the amount of time that it has as far as the delay versus uh, actual trucks in, in getting product to the final destination. Um, you know, but not every product is, is time sensitive. You know, a, lo a lot of times that one day, that extra, you know, that extra one or two days that uh, may um, be uh, integrated because of the intermodal move um, for a lot of products that doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, and if it doesn't make that much of a difference, I think that the fact that you have more reliability, more flexibility, and you're also getting some sustainability sort of uh, gains through that, uh, I, I feel like that outweighs the amount of time that you may lose on that intermodal move. Makes tons of sense. So you've got the van market who can now... Um, utilize more the people who are utilizing the van market who have the option or should be exploring options to be using um, rail, not only for capacity reasons, but also for emissions um, and re emission reduction goals. What what do you see inside? You talked a little bit about um, fuel management on the locomotive side and also, you know, you know, there's there's the idea of making the locomotives even more efficient, right? Is there is just like on the road, is there focus on um, electrification of locomotives what is what is the the medium term um, like alternative fuels will be in van and then the the longer term like EV will be in van in the locomotive space as well I, I think battery powered locomotives is is probably next on the horizon um, BNSF railroad has been testing battery powered locomotives um, in fact they recently conducted a test that seemed to be very successful um, in California and you know, when you think about the, 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 the way that electricity can be managed for locomotives, um, it's going to be much easier, I, I believe, you know, from what we're seeing, at least from the initial sort of results, to be able to have um, battery electric powered sort of locomotives uh, relative to uh, hydrogen power or even sort of uh, electric lines that you would see in a passenger train, um, just because there's a lot of interference uh, operation that potentially could happen through that. Um, with that said, I think technology is advancing very quickly. And, you know, the more alternatives there are to be able to create a cleaner way for locomotives to move, the better. But right now, from what we're seeing, it feels like there's a lot more support behind battery electric uh, powered locomotives. Um, also on the locomotive side, you know, idling to anti-idling technologies, as I, as I mentioned earlier, are, are, are very important. 
Um, that's something that I think technology is going to address very soon. Um, distributed trains and being able to move larger trains and longer trains with more capacity uh, is another way that uh, you know the uh, railroads are able to manage and, and create a, a much more fuel efficient sort of move. Um, and then you know the other way that we're seeing uh, some of the railroads sort of integrate right now are using leveraging big data analytics and taking the big data analytics uh, and taking all the different moves and all the different sort of um, uh, moves across the network and really sort of analyze it to see how can they optimize um, the horsepower per tonnage for every one of those moves. Um, are there different ways that the locomotives, you know, and certain moves or lanes uh, are moving or how they're moving or how they're managing um, can be reduced because of the fact that they know that, you know, from point A to point B, the, the, the locomotive does not need to be running as much. You don't need to have as much power to get from, you know, a particular sort of uh, origin and destination. And then, you know, optimizing the, the software around sort of um, the way the, the, the power is managed as well. So there's a few different levers that the railroads currently have and they're exploring. Um, but, you know, when you think about how much investment is being put back into the in, into technology and into fuel efficiency, I, I think you're seeing more now than ever before. So the railroads are taking a very, you know, a, a, a very serious stance and position with making sure that this is, a, um, you know, a, a, an extremely um, environmentally friendly mode of transportation. I mean, it already has a very powerful, sustainable story as it is by being the most uh, um, environmentally friendly mode of transportation. But, you know, when you think about, you know, where we are today, I think you fast forward 10 years from now. Uh, what we see today, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be table stakes relative to where we're going to be 10 years from now with respect to efficiency and, and, and reducing our emissions footprint. That is awesome. Um, I think that's great. I mean, to hear, again, we, we, we focus on inspiration. I think that is inspiring to know that there's so much happening in the rail space, that there's opportunities now for emission savings, that it's only going to get better. Um, and so, you know, definitely to stay tuned. Martin, you've done an amazing job. Um, putting information out on your website. I encourage folks who are listening to this to go to, to your website. What is the best way for people to get connected and to learn more about what Comtrex is doing? Yeah, go to Comtrex.com um, or you can, you know, send me a note um, at my email, mlew at Comtrex.com or, you know, follow us on, on LinkedIn. Uh, an important part of, of, of what we feel the role, our role as an industry is trying to provide as much education and, and you know, content and much information on what's happening in the industry. Uh, and all of our content is really driven by our community of members. So um, if there's anything that you know, you're looking to learn about within an industry, you know, we're trying to provide that through our, our resources section. And, and you know, overall, we're, you know, we, we feel like it's an important part of our role you know, as stewards of the environment to help make railroad, uh, railroading a successful sort of mode of transportation. Well, this has been informative and hopefully this can be added to the library of uh, content that you're providing. We just scratched the surface and um, we're gonna have to have you back because I really wanna dive in on carbon markets as well. Great, thank you so much for having me, Dan. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Norfolk Southern isn't just in the business of moving freight, they're in the business of a better planet. To learn more about Norfolk Southern's industry-leading sustainability initiatives, go to nscorp.com slash better planet.